Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 281, and today's guest is Rich Miner, Google advisor and Android co-founder. Many entrepreneurs have aspirations to make an impact and change the world, which is admirable. However, building a company that impacts billions is obviously very, very hard and very, very rare. In the case of Rich Miner, his professional career has been very successful on several levels, including the change the world category. As a co-founder of Wildfire, he was part of the team that built the world's first digital assistant, which also includes having his name on the patent for using words to wake up your voice-based assistant, which is something that we are all familiar with via our Hey Google, Hey Alexa, or Hey Siri commands. Then, as a co-founder of Android, he helped revolutionize the smartphone industry with a product that has over 3 billion active users and what is now the most popular operating system in the world. Next, he disrupted the corporate venture fund industry by helping to launch Google Ventures, now known as GV, which is one of the top investors in the industry with billions of dollars under management. Last year was another accomplishment that will make an ongoing impact to students for years to come in the naming of the school that he graduated from. I'm talking about the UMass Lowell Richard A. Minor School of Computer and Information Sciences. We obviously had a ton to cover over the course of this podcast, so stay tuned to hear lots of great stories about Rich's background, all the companies he's built, and lots of great advice along the way. Trust me, this is an episode that you do not want to miss. Okay, quick side note, is your company hiring? If the answer is yes, then you need to add a subscription to VentureFizz. It is your employment branding and hiring solution that not only helps you engage with our highly targeted audience, but we also provide your talent team with content to do their job more effectively. It is high value at an affordable price, and even better, it's just a rolling three-month commitment that can be paused or unpaused based on hiring cycles. To learn more, send an email to info at VentureFizz.com. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Rich. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. I I don't even know where to begin because there's so much to talk about as far as what you've accomplished throughout your career in terms of building amazing products that touch so many people across the world. So, um, but before we get into that, because we have a lot to talk about, I wanted to talk about entrepreneurship and really thinking big. I think I saw in one of the videos of you speaking, it's, you know, not knowing what's possible, right? And doing something that you're passionate about. So as entrepreneurs, like how should they be thinking big and, you know, you can actually change the world. Yeah. I mean, there's so many different flavors of entrepreneurs and so many different ideas, right? There's you know, thinking big is definitely a, an approach. And I think the, most of the startups that I've been involved in have been pretty disruptive with big innovation, you know, innovation leaps, but there's startups that are incremental, there's startups, right? The key thing is founder with that, you know, with that seeing a need, seeing a way to satisfy that need, and then building that thing to satisfy that need, and hopefully, you know, identifying a market that also see that need in a market that's big enough and or you know, a revenue model that makes sense relative to the size of that market. I mean, it's kind of formulaic that way. But I, you know, from my from my own purpose, the innovations that I've mostly been a part of that I think have been able to have big impact, you know, we, you know, just discussing Avid technology that I was, you know, peripherally involved in and, and Wildfire that I was involved in, and Android that I was involved in, and some of the companies I invested in, 
there was a confluence of things that were that were basically it wasn't a single technology that enabled you to do something new. It was the intersection of several different technologies coming together that were all at peaks in their development that let you do something new and innovative. You know, with Android, it was capacitive touchscreens, processors that were powerful enough to run real operating systems, battery technology that had gotten to the point where you could have longer lasting batteries, um, um, a wireless network speeds that would allow you to bring enough content to those smart computers that were going to be in your pocket. So the evolution from two to three to four G and what was happening there. So it was, it was really all of those things coming together that made smartphones possible at that moment in a way that they really couldn't have been before that. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, the intersection of technology and one of the challenges that entrepreneurs often have is being early to market. Like the technology is not ready for what that vision is yet. Yeah. And and then there's other things. I mean, because I wouldn't say that Uber necessarily has that confluence of different technologies, but that was realizing that, wait, a new platform allows you to do things very differently, right? And they kind of mm-hmm. We're sort of the first of press a button and and something magical happens, right? Press a button and a black car shows up, right? You know, right. for a while it's been press a button and food from any of the local restaurants you might want to get food from can show up, right? And that, yeah. you know, those were right place, right time with an ability to 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 leverage a new platform that you have always in your pocket that you can see the menus on or that you can see the map on or whatever. And anyways, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's rewind the clock. So where'd you grow up? What were you like as a child? <laughs> yeah, what did I grow up in? Uh, I grew up in Natick, Mass. Um, with, for those who might remember, Doug Flutie, uh, you know, was oh, the yeah. uh, uh, co-captain of the football team a year ahead of me, but but a lot of Really? A year ahead of you? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, he, was, he was a year ahead and my other friends were a year ahead. So, uh, and they were also on the football team. I wasn't a jock, um, but I, I was able to get along with the jocks, the heads and the, and the brains, I guess. Um, so anyway, so that's where I grew up. Uh, and, um, you know, I, my kids were joking because a while ago we found something that in one of my classes, it asked me to kind of list, you know, like favorite food or favorite this, which for me was lobster, which it's good. I spend a lot of time in Maine these days. Um, but I forget what it was. It was something like things that you can't tolerate. And I put down stupid. Uh, so I don't know if that speaks to what <laughs> I was fix as a stupid. kid. I certainly wasn't very academically focused as a kid. I, I barely probably made it into college. I wasn't focused on college track that much, just not thinking about it. I, I when I finally woke up and realized I, I was maybe you know not on a path, I ended up taking a summer class in physics in you know my high school you know junior uh, maybe junior year. Um, sophomore junior year to get back on a college track. And then I think the only school I applied to is UMass Lowell, which thankfully I, I got in uh, and, and I got in for physics, not for computer science, but quickly decided that, that, that I didn't want to, I didn't want to look like the other physicists that were walking around. Well, so you received your undergrad, your master's and your PhD from UMass Lowell. And from what I gathered, you were writing programs for the Commodore 64, which I, uh, you know, have great childhood memories of that and my Texas Instruments TI-49, no, TI-994A. Um, when I was Dude, also looking, wait, I, they won't be able to see this on the podcast, but here's a it, box. I, oh, I found a cassette tape of the video game I wrote in uh, kind of 83 or whenever it was for the Commodore 64. So I'm, I'm holding up a box right now of a Commodore 64 yep. that I bought on eBay because I was going to try and see if it would be, I doubt it'll be able to read that cassette tape, but I thought I'd give it a try. 
what was the game? What, like, what was it the? It was called. Uh, uh, it was called Guardians. It was just a very simple. You know, th- these computers. What they had was uh, these thing called sprites, which was an early way of doing high performance graphics because there was a special chip in that computer that could move little animated um, uh, graphics objects around independent of of the other stuff that was controlling things on the screen. So you could have fast animation for a spaceship and aliens, spaceships coming at you and missiles that you were firing. They could all be rendered fast. So it was just a little game like that. Okay. So the other thing I discovered was I would argue you were an early influencer for Grubhub. So you were ordering pizza over the 9X network. Like, oh yeah, and you actually had, right. you had the video too. Sponsor. I mean, one of the reasons why I stayed at UMass Lowell was I just had a good gig. My professor as an undergraduate and graduate student let me be co-principal investigator on some proposals. And so we'd written some proposals to 9X and built for them a video communications system uh, that, you know, you know, way before we had Zoom and we're doing things like this, made it look kind of natural for you just to have a video chat. And so, yes, we ordered pizza for our demo for the executives for 9X, we had used the cable network and we put a system in at a local pizza hut. So during the demo, we could order pizza over this video conferencing infrastructure that we built that was pretty innovative for, you know, whenever that was 19, you know, mid 1980s. And, um, and then that was, that pizza was actually delivered for our lunch from Domino's for the, for the meeting that we were having. with <laughs> So Zoom meets Grubhub. I mean, it was, it was all right there. Yep. Right there. The, there is a there is a picture of you online that people can look up of you having the video chat and the camera on your computer. I'm just like, oh, I, I love but that guy. Stuff, Domino's so. was brilliant, too, because he was he was a bit of a ham and it, he, like he could have been an actor. Like I said, you know, well, what kind of pizzas do you have? And he grabbed one and very, you know, hold <laughs> held it up to the camera so we could see. The pizza. <laughs> it was a good. Demo. OK, OK, so, um, you know, fast forward, you know, to, you know, this year. A major accomplishment. I mean, so the 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 UMass Lowell Computer Science School is now named. It was dedicated to you. Like your name is is attached to it. It's the Richard A. Minor School of Computer and Information Sciences. Like, could you ever imagine that your name would be attached to the institution that you graduated from? No, and it was actually kind of a a, a hard decision. I mean, they. You know, uh, humbly, I you know they came and asked me if if uh, you know very humbly for me for, for you know if I would be willing to do that um, and and you know it takes some thought because we tend to not put our names on things. I had already had an endowment that I created at the university, but I'd done it in the name of my major professor, and I'd actually done that. Um, a lot of people create endowments after somebody passes away. I wanted to celebrate him while he was still around, so we did that. Uh, with him when he was still around. And then he tragically actually uh, passed away uh, uh, just almost a year after that. Um, but, but the, but, but we just tend to be a little bit anonymous. So it took some thinking, but I, I think it's good for the school. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a great program. They were, they were maturing from a department to a full school at the university. They get more applicants at UMass Lowell for computer science than any other program. About 12% of the applicants the past couple of years have been for computer science major. Um, so, so yeah, it was an honor, and um, you know, and hopefully I'll get a chance to lean in a little bit and and help the program as it continues to develop and grow and evolve. Yeah, because from what I gathered, there's 1,600 undergraduate students in that program and 300 graduate students, so it's it's a sizable number. Yeah, big big impact, and and as you know, I saw this in my own 
career and you hear it from a lot of other companies, it's you, you just get great, you know, focused programmers out of that program. They're, you know, they just get work done. Yeah. And absolutely. a lot of them can play hockey too. Yes. Great hockey program. Amazing hockey program. Um, all right. So let's talk about your career. How did you get started down the professional path? Yeah. Well, so um, again, I think part of it is I've just been kind of lucky and lazy in right place and right time. I mean, you know, we worked with Bill on Avid. Uh, we got connected together and, and struck up a great rapport. And I didn't join uh, Bill at Avid, but when Bill started to think about his next startup, uh, which ended up being Wildfire, he reached out to me and so got to sit around a table with, you know, three other founders and 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 talk about, dream about what a product could be that used speech recognition and um, and kind of revelize, you know, revolutionize the, and, and it really introduced the whole concept of a voice-based assistant, right? Like, you know, this was um, in, in, in the early 90s um, when there was a little bit of speech recognition for uh, interactive voice control where you could say the number one <laughs> and, instead of pressing the number one. Um, but there certainly wasn't conversational user interfaces for computers. And so that was, you know, you know, that was effectively the seed of the idea was how do you get speech in with communication? And and that rapidly evolved, uh, not just with Bill but and, and Nick Darbalot, but with this other uh, co-founder, Tony Lovell, who really had the vision for bringing that idea to life as an anthropomorphized voice assistant, something that had real personality. And again, that's commonplace today because everybody can say, hey, Alexa in their home or hey, Google. But um, but we, but we have a patent. I literally have a patent from 1994 on the wake up word, you know, saying, hey, Alexa, that's a patent that we had from 1994 for waking up your voice based assistant in a conversational really? UI. Oh. Wow, that is unbelievable. <laughs> like, yep. that, like, hey. This is why I love these conversations, because I just learned so much. Yeah, Google a network knowledgeable assistant, Rich Miner, uh, and, and and others. That, you know, it was a group effort, but you'll find that that early patent that had you know that wake up word and other other ideas in it as part of the core beginnings. Wildfire went on to raise capital. So, where did it end up as far as you know scale, growth, launch, like use cases, like what, like where did it get to as far as the company in itself? Yeah, I mean that 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 was a long slog. That was almost that was like a nine year startup. Um, was kind of, you know, still passionate about it while the internet was growing up around us. So probably missed that first wave of some internet startups because we were still focused on wildfire. Um, but, you know, but, uh, and and I probably, it, that software at one point felt like we almost had more releases than customers. We were selling it to, trying to sell it to carriers, uh, a voice-based assistant with the idea that Effectively, you know, remember back then people had fixed line telephones was the primary way of communicating. And our idea was you pick up that phone in your home and it and you and, and it says, here I am. And you order pizza or you call, you know, you voice dial phone calls or voice control your voice messaging and or ask for the weather. Right. So all the things you could do now because you have this, you know, little puck on your table or a home, home hub on your kitchen counter. Um, you know, as a smart display, our thought was just turn the telephone into that. In fact, that's how we often used it. I would keep a, my desk phone on a speakerphone with um, in speakerphone mode connected to Wildfire. And if while I'm typing away, I want to make a phone call, I'd be like, hey, Wildfire, you know, call Bill Warner. I'd get the call connected. 
And if, if you, again, if you want to see this in action, you can find it in YouTube. There is a video showing the wildfire assistant in action, which is awesome to see. Yeah. Um, and, and that was, you know, that was, so it was a long startup and we did have great investors with Greylock and Matrix and, and, and Microsoft uh, came in and, and others and Craig McCaw at, at McCaw Cellular uh, came into that. And then eventually we did sell that to Orange. It was positive exit. Uh, the, the European mobile phone company, which was then bought by France Telecom, and that was deployed, you know, as a voice assistant in France and in uh, in the UK. When they discontinued the service in the UK, there was an uprising and people created a Don't Kill Wildfire <laughs> website, I recall. Um, so, you know, it definitely had passionate users. Anyways, that was a good ride. And then that also transitioned into my first more big company experience working for you know about five years in the telecom company. I helped Orange drive some innovative product. I launched the first wind smartphone uh, that was a Windows mobile phone. Um, uh, Orange launched the very first Windows mobile phone anywhere on the planet. They were the first carrier to launch that. And then, um, and also started, you know, had my first experience of starting a venture fund where I started a corporate venture fund for Orange called Orange Ventures. So from there, definitely a lot of dots are connected. Of is that how you met Andy Rubin? Yeah. So, so I think there were two things that happened there. One, launching that first Windows mobile phone, mm-hmm. I kind of had this epiphany of, yikes, um, like this. You know, it wasn't great, but it wasn't that bad. It had some kind of clever things in it as an OS. It, you know, you could build apps for it. Um, and um, it was still on a candy bar phone with a regular touch keypad, a little tiny screen, but it had some clever things in it. And I was start, I start, and but and also dealing with Microsoft was brutal because they just wouldn't, you know, we were orange. We were one of the larger worldwide mobile phone companies at the time, having you know merged with France Telecom and their properties. We had our own messaging systems that we used on all of our other phones, including SMS, but we also had a, an IP-based messaging system. And you know, we would tell Microsoft, well, wait, we need our background images to be orange because we're orange. All of our phones have orange motif on the background. And they were like, oh, no, we have our start, you know, screen with our blue Microsoft, you know. And then yeah. and we were like, well, we need our, our own messaging app. And they were like, oh, no, you've got MSN Messenger. And realized we were the only carrier on the planet that had agreed to launch this phone and they're still pushing back. So I realized, wow, this could be like the desktop. There could be one company controlling the phone that's in everybody's pocket. In, in a way that, that doesn't allow innovation. We had invested in a company called Savage, which was a spin out from AT&T Bell Labs. It was based here in the, outside of Boston. And they were yep. building a Java-based open mobile phone OS. So we had that investment. We'd also invested in Andy's company, Danger, um, which had built this clever mobile data device. that was also a phone, more of a data device with a swiveling screen and a keyboard underneath it. Uh, and it was And it was launched by T-Mobile as the hip top. It was the... Okay. The T-Mobile hip top. Um, and, uh, Did or, that evolve or, to the sidekick? Because wasn't it the sidekick? Or maybe it was also? the T-Mobile sidekick. I forget. Andy, it was the danger hip top, and then that was sold as the T-Mobile sidekick. Got the sidekick, yes. I think, was T-Mobile yeah. brand. Yeah. So, so I got to know Andy through that. And, um, and then, you know, again, you see how these startups evolve. So Andy, you know, had many board meetings in California with Andy at Danger. And then... He had, you know, left um, and stepped aside and gone off and started his other startup. And what I touched base with him was at a point where he had started a company called Android that was looking at building an OS for cameras. Um, and and was, he was having trouble fundraising. 
And he had started to think maybe I should go back to phones. And, and I just, with my experiences with Windows Mobile, with Savage, helped solidify that idea that, no, the world really does need an open mobile phone OS. We need something that's going to combat Microsoft. And we need something, you know, at, at that point, Savage was, you know, not executing well in my mind, um, even though it was one of our portfolio companies. So, yeah, started talking to Andy about about that pivot and then helped him write the decks for that pivot, went with him to Mobile World Congress. I was still at Orange at the time, but we talked to HTC, the big you know, mobile phone provider that was building a lot of the Windows mobile phones at the time. And we met with Peter Chow, who ran HTC. And, and anyways, I saw Peter's reception and others' receptions, and that's when I said, okay, I'm, I'm in. But one of the things before we get into Android, because obviously that's an amazing story to tell, uh, just you look at what Boston accomplishes, like it, they don't get credit. Like you think of the wealth of knowledge of voice recognition, like SpeechWorks and Valingo and obviously Wildfire and, you know, what eventually, you know, some of those companies ended up being nuanced. There's so much like history of voice recognition and innovation in that space. And then to learn, you know, the one of the original operating systems for mobile was created in Chelmsford, I think is where Savage was. So just Boston doesn't get enough credit sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually for speech recognition, we also had learned out in Houseby was here. Kurzweil, yeah. right? Started Kurzweil was here. So yeah, it was almost similar to kind of the robotics, uh, um, you know, collective of companies that we have today. We did have quite a few speech recognition focused companies. All right. So getting started, you meet Andy, you learn he's trying to build an operating system for cameras you're like wait hold on let's do this for mobile the world needs this um so you had there was four co-founders from what i gathered right nick sears and chris white were the other two yeah yeah andy had been working with um andy had been working with chris white already for a while on that first idea and then nick was at t-mobile at the time he was one of the people that helped launch the t-mobile sidekick so he knew the mobile space very well so Nick and I came in kind of in that rebirth of, of Android to focus on mobile phones. What was the size of the company at this point? And like, like, what was everybody doing? Like, like, were you guys like, were you writing code? Like, what, like, were you just thinking strategic? Like, I'm just trying to imagine that point in time in Android's history. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know that I wrote, uh, I think I did a tiny bit of hacking, but by then that wasn't really where I was best leveraged. I, you know, the original focus was let's get this pitch figured out. Let's okay. get, you know, let's start working on a fundraising deck and, okay. and let's get that strategy and story told. And, and because it wasn't just an open mobile phone OS, because it's hard to make money. You know, if you charge nothing for your OS, it's hard to make money at scale from that. And so the business model for Android at the time was Andy and team on the West Coast were going to build the open mobile phone OS. And then I was going to build a team on the East Coast that was going to build a carrier services platform that was going to tie that phone OS into the carrier's network and do, um, you know, contact list in the cloud, photo album in the cloud, uh, a customization of the device uh, based on the subscriber's age and, and, and sex and other things so that you could have personalized wallpapers and ringtones and other things. So, so we had this razor, razor business model that we put in that initial VC pitch of, you know, let's let's build this open mobile phone OS, but then we'll be able to go to the carriers and say, hey, you know, uh, um, you know, AT&T and, and Verizon, 
you're selling these Android phones from Motorola and Samsung and, and others, we have a single services platform that you can put in your network that will make all of those have a consistent set of services. Um, and so that was the original pitch. And so pretty focused on that. We were the four founders, a few other engine, you know, good engineers, um, some of whom Andy had worked with um, either at Danger at BE or other other places that he had been. You know, and, th- and that was kind of the opposite of, uh, of of wildfire because it was, you know, I probably transitioned fully from Orange to Android in say February, and we were acquired um, in uh, in July of two thousand and two thousand and five. Wow! Yeah, yeah. So you were out raising capital, and you ended up meeting with Google. Like, what, what was the story there of how that acquisition happened? Yeah, well, part of our pitch, um, it was just an RVC pitch that we wanted to have as part of the narrative was, well, if you build this open mobile phone OS and it's completely brandable, you know, you're talking to all of these internet focused, you know, excited venture capitalists. It's not so exciting to say, yeah, we're going to have carriers as our customers, our primary customers. I mean, not bad. There's a business model there, but we thought it would be a more exciting story if we could say, oh, we've talked to Yahoo and Google. And they're excited that if we build this open mobile phone OS, they've said, yeah, we could imagine having a Google phone or, you know, Yahoo having a Yahoo branded phone. Um, And so really talk about this branding of an open mobile phone OS in a way that it's not just carrier brands, but some of the cooler internet startups of the, of the day. And so we were really just talking to BD people. You know, Andy had, um, uh, had worked with Megan Smith, who was running business development to Google uh, at General Magic. And so Megan, he had organized a, a presentation with Megan just to kind of walk through our effectively our DC pitch. And because Andy had also been at a Davos 30 under 30 with Larry, he just sent an email to Larry saying, oh, we're pitching Megan's team. And so he was just in the back of the room at the time. And part of our pitch was from my experiences with Orange and Microsoft was if we don't have this open mobile phone OS, it's likely that Microsoft will own another platform just like they own the desktop. And we didn't think that was good. And and Larry, you know, this is at a time when Google was having the browser wars with, you know, spending a lot of money on Firefox to combat pre, you know, pre Chrome, uh, a lot of money on Firefox to, you know, to have an alternative to Windows Explorer. And, um, and I think Larry already had that taste in his mouth where, man, I don't have to do that again, you know, with a disadvantage because they own this other platform. Um, there should be, he believed that there should be an open mobile phone platform. And, you know, basically said something like, boy, that sounds really hard. Don't you think you'll need help? Which, of course, the corp dev people in the room take that as, oh, he think, you know, he wants us to you know, invest or buy this company. So right, that, yeah. that, that kicked off the conversations. Okay. So while you're doing all this, um, did you have any knowledge of what Apple was doing or what they were going to be launching? No, I'm, I'm not even convinced. I need to go back and look at the timeline. I'm pretty sure when we're having these very first conversations, they might not have even, or it was right around the time when, you know, uh, Jobs was just asking Tony Fidel, what do you think you could do to put a screen on a device to, you know, so it was, it was, it was, you know, the seed of an idea had just started inside of Apple at that same point in time. Um, um, yeah. So the, so you launched your first Android phone in 2007 the it was the HTC dream yeah and there's a little bit of uh, you know I've done a lot to dig into this period of history because it had been reported that 
you know, Apple launched the iPhone, which they did about a year earlier, and then we completely changed our plans. And that really wasn't what happened. We had, um, you know, prior to the iPhone being known to us, there were rumors, but it wasn't announced. Those rumors were outside of Google. They were just in the industry as Apple, you know, doing this. It might have been rumors, but no details on it. But prior to any of that, um, we were in parallel. We had two phones that we were building early on. One of them was called, called Sooner which um, looked a little bit more like a BlackBerry, small screen on top, fixed keyboard below it. And, and um, you can find pictures of that online. But at the same time, we, you know, we knew that we could get that phone out a little bit quicker because it wasn't going to have a touch interface and it wasn't going to be a complicated device. Um, but at the same time we were building that, we were also working on Dream. We had the designs for Dream, renderings for Dream. We had a, a group starting to look at the hinge for that because that could convert from a screen-only device, well, screen with a trackball uh, device to a, um, in fact, I have one behind me, um, to a um, to, to a sliding that screen over, uh, and similar to that first danger device where you'd slide it up and have a keyboard revealed. Um, but there were, we were, you know, pretty convinced back then that we would want to have a touch interface for it. We hadn't started work on that touch interface because we were working on Sooner to launch that Sooner first. So we didn't need a touch interface. So, so yes, when the iPhone launched and we decided to cancel Sooner, the engineering team had a big shift because we switched from focusing on that Sooner device to, oh, now we have to add touch to the user interface and we, you know, and, and, and really focus on that as the user experience. And, and so, yeah, that, and that did launch on T-Mobile as the, as the T-Mobile G1, and that was the first Android device. Okay. And then how did it grow, like really catch on from there with the, you know, other manufacturers and, you know, Android becoming this just massive thing? Yeah, well, I mean, we, you know, it's, 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 it's complicated and I've gone back and forth thinking, you know, there should be a book that really gets into a lot of this detail because it's much more Definitely. than we can cover here. But there were yeah. a lot of things that we just lucked out or, or did well. Like we knew we wanted to launch the device um, in a way that it would get quick adoption. And so well before announcing Android, we built this thing we call the Open Handset Alliance. And the Open Handset Alliance had a bunch of OEMs and for the OEMs to join, they had to commit to building a handset based on Android. So we had Motorola and LG and Samsung and others committing, HTC committing to build a device based on Android. Um, We had a bunch of carriers signed up that they were willing to deploy at least, you know, sell at least one Android phone on their mobile network. And we had other partners also signed up. So we did that staging. So we knew it was going to have some momentum because we already had carriers ready. We already had uh, handset OEMs that were going to be building a portfolio of devices. And then also, honestly, Apple did a lot to help us uh, because Apple launched the iPhone exclusive in, in a number of early markets. And, and in the U S for instance, that exclusivity was two years. So there were two years that no other carrier could have that was an iPhone. AT&T, right? In the US was yeah, AT&T, AT&T So AT&T yeah. on the iPhone. So your Verizon, you're like, I need a response. I need something. I can't go two years and not have, you know, have the entire smartphone space owned by, by AT&T. So they knew they wanted to build uh, um, and launch a smartphone. They were going to either launch a RIM-based smartphone uh, to compete with Apple and RIM was pitching them on a device or mm-hmm. Motorola came to us um, and, and asked if we wanted to build something to pitch to Verizon, which became the Verizon Droid. Um, that was a little controversial inside of 
of, of Google and Android because Motorola had worked with us previous to this. They really pushed that they wanted to launch the first Android phone, not the T-Mobile G1. They wanted to launch uh, what they were going to call the Motorola Finder, FNDR. Remember, they had Razer. This was yeah, going to be the yeah. Finder, FNDR, Finder, because it had Google search. And, and so they had pushed really hard. We're going to build this amazing phone. We want Eric Schmidt involved. We want, you know, complicated contracts. And then they actually backed out of that. Um, and Andy had a real bad taste in his mouth uh, and didn't want to work with Motorola again. And also Verizon was CDMA, which was a very different network technology at the time. They've since evolved um, to, to be on more standards compliant with, with GSM and 4G and LTE. But back then they uh, pushed heavily, you know, they were, they were selling the CDMA network. And so Andy didn't want to, we were, we had, our first phones were GSM phones. He didn't want to do CDMA, he didn't want to work with Motorola, but we, you know, basically started having the conversations and got them to a point where it was hard for him to not be supportive. And, um, and that phone really put Android on the map because Motorola put a hundred million dollar ad campaign. So you had a top U S carrier with a real large ad spend. And, and, and if you look in history, that really started that rocket ship of growth where I think within nine months after that, Android overtook, uh, overtook the iPhone. It wasn't a lot. It was between that and a year and a half where Android, even though iPhone had had a year and a half lead in market, Android quickly overtook it because we had all these different OEMs, all these different markets. Apple could have one carrier in each market. We could be both on T-Mobile and Verizon. So it just, um, you know, again, Apple's behavior helped. And the other thing that helped was Apple didn't have an app store day one. We announced Android and, and we announced the Android market before Apple actually had launched the, oh, the Apple app store. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. And, and so, um, but Apple, you know, back then their terms were rev share developer and Apple, and we were willing, you know, to help grow adoption of Android at the time we were willing to do rev share with the carriers uh, from the Android market. So even the, the terms that we were launching the device on were more attractive. I mean, just think back before Android and Apple, like to get an app on a phone, <laughs> you had to go to the carrier and have them run through their whole system to get, you know, an app. I mean, just it's really remarkable what obviously has happened through that innovation. So if you fast forward, according, I think I got these numbers from the Android website. So 1,300 brands have developed 24,000 plus Android devices and 2.5 billion active devices. Like, so when we, does that sound right? Yeah, I think it's over 3 billion now, actually. Over 3 billion. Yeah, so devices. it's growing by the day, I think is the upshot. So when we start our conversation of, you know, thinking big, right? I mean, this is a perfect textbook example of, you know, something that effectively did change the world. Yeah. It, I mean, yeah, it had, it, you know, having been part of a product that's, you know, been touched, you know, that has 3 million, the 3 billion active users is, uh, is, yeah, it's hard to comprehend. Um, I mean, it's a fact, it is, you, we can say it's the, it is the most populous operating system in the world. There is no other, it's more populous than windows, way more populous than, than iOS. Um, mm -hmm. Mac OS. It was the most popular operating system in the world. Well, the other thing that, you know, sidestepping from Android, it also created Google's presence in Cambridge because they didn't have a presence before Android, right? 
Yeah, I, I didn't want to move to the West Coast. So I convinced uh, Eric Schmidt and others that, you know, if you looked at at the time, if you looked, Google had a lot of hires that they were hiring out of MIT and Harvard and other Boston area universities. They also had um, a reasonable rejection rate uh, um, from those schools because people wouldn't want to relocate or move. Some of them wouldn't want to relocate or move. So it, it wasn't hard to convince them to have a Cambridge office. I mean, Eric had had a bit of a bad taste in his mouth because he had started a, a Boston Sun office um, and he wasn't that happy with how that had gone. But I think, A, that was built out in the burbs along 128. And B, I think that was built at a time when Sun was probably had passed its apex. And so, yeah. you know, he was very surprised. I remember one time when he came to the office and we'd already grown to about 85 people. We were steps from the, the T in Kendall Square right across from MIT. And he was, you know, very happy with um, the decision to build the Cambridge office. And I want to—I'd uh, have to fact check this, but I want to—I might—I I think I remember seeing a Scott Kersner article about what is Google working on. There was just like a logo of just Google or something, and no one had any idea what was happening behind those doors. Yeah, it was a pretty brutal article because he—he, I think he pegged me as the Willy Wonka. Uh, in you know, character in the Google Chocolate Factory, and there had been rumors of a phone, and he had got some people to talk about you know the fact that there was being a, a phone being developed there. Yeah, yeah, that's so funny. All right, so at what point do you make the step into creating another corporate venture arm for Google Ventures? Yeah, well, I mean, Google made the decision that they wanted to get into venturing. I, you know, it was still pretty early in Android. I really didn't have any intention of leaving the Android team, but I, I had built a corporate venture group. And so when Bill Maris, who ended up, I ended up joining as the, you know, kind of one of the two founding partners of Google Ventures, when he, you know, was just doing what any, you know, bright person would do is go talk to other people that have had a similar experience and somebody pointed him to me. And he was like, hey, I'm talking to people who, you know, have corporate venture capital experience about what, what it might look like to build a venture arm for Google. I just kind of laid out what I would do based on my experience at Orange. And it was a bunch of things like, don't make it strategic, make it financially motivated. And my belief was, if you're financially motivated, you end up being more strategic than a strategic venture arm is because you can invest in better companies if you're financially motivated and invest earlier if you're financially motivated than, than if you're strategically focused. Um, corporate funds can, most corporate funds are, are also strategic funds in that they invest with a strategic goal. I was very adamant that you'd want to set something up that was financially motivated and with a financial goal that, that wasn't nearly as common and that you had to structure it like a traditional top tier VC fund in that way and, and attract top partners. And so I'd spelled out this whole list of things and, and, you know, Bill and more importantly, Google was like, sure, 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 sure. That all sounds good. And it was really, it was like, Oh, if I could be part of an idealized corporate fund that has Google brand, how could I not do that? And, Bill enjoyed working with me through the process of, of describing what the fund could be. And so he, he asked me to join him as his first partner. So from what I gathered, there was a $60 million initial capital commitment. Obviously it's you know, billions and billions of dollars now that GV's working with, but what were um, some of the early investments that you remember? Yeah, I think it might've been more in the seventies, but I forget. We had up to a hundred million dollars. We just didn't deploy all the capital in that first year, if I recall. And, and um, 
I think it was either Recorded Future was one of the first two checks. Um, so I'd met Christopher. He had been a successful entrepreneur before, uh, hit all the boxes, liked what he was proposing, even though his early version of Recorded Future had some overlap with Google because it was originally not uh, as focused as it is on security. It was um, it was really a, a, a horizontal search product, but with this idea of temporal temporal search, you know, not based on semantic relationships, but based on time-based relationships and what kind of things. And your security threat, threat intelligence has that aspect. Certain things indicate a certain type of thing is going to be coming next from a, from a threat um, situation. So anyways, that was one of our first investments. Foundation Medicine was another early investment. Um, um, but yeah, we, you know, started early on um, in that first year, Christian Yeshwant, who um, is now helping to run the fund, run, built the, uh, built the whole life science practice. It's, you know, basically one of the top funds in the world for life science investments. Uh, Krishna was still doing his, uh, dual MD MBA. He, he had graduated with a computer science degree from Stanford was, um, was, uh, um, simultaneously getting his doctor degree and getting an MBA and, moonlighting with us, helping us do due diligence on some of the life science investments we were looking at. Megan Smith, who I mentioned before, had introduced us to Krishna. Um, so it was really the three of us um, writing those first, you know, discussing and, and I, you know, Krishna was, I think, just, like I said, moonlighting as a, um, um, as an intern um, and uh, yeah, driving around, visiting companies and writing those first checks. And we were talking before we started recording the podcast, Recorded Future just announced literally like over the past week or two, they hit 250 million in ARR, which, you know, remarkable. Mm-hmm. Like, like, quarter, quarter, quarter billion dollars. I prefer to say it that way. But yeah, pretty, pretty, <laughs> pretty amazing uh, trajectory for Christopher and Recorded Future. Just a great anchor company in the Boston tech scene now. Then, then you know, then I did HubSpot. I did Toast. I did, you know, I was in a number of, you oh. know, re- Really, you know, good, successful, well-known East Coast uh, success stories. Um, yeah, I didn't know you did HubSpot and Toast too. Wow. Okay. Yeah, wasn't first check in either of those, but definitely right. deployed a good amount of capital. Toast, I could have been first check basically because I talked to them really on. I just, you know, thought their approach should be slightly different, and and um, they ended up agreeing and kind of going in that direction. You know, so it's one of these cases where I just should have believed in the founders and written the check and given them the advice, not, you know, given the advice, not written the check. But anyways, we still did quite well on toast. Uh, Phenomenal. Like what they accomplished. I mean, just three brilliant and DECA alums recognizing a problem and thinking of a different way to disrupt the incumbent. Uh, Such a great success story. Well, Android was a big part of that. That that path, right? Because they right. they built their first all of their terminals were based on Android. The handheld and the tablet devices that they used were all Android based. Yeah, so it was, and that uh, was the advice I gave. They early on wanted to build a fork of Android uh, that was focused on their POS, if I recall. And I, okay. you know, and, and and I and and I think even a special hardware device. And I convinced them, you know, don't you want to just try and make this work on? any tablet before you start customizing either the OS or the tablet. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, now they, you know, others are making and, and they've you know gotten big enough where they can kind of dictate the requirements for what those devices look like. But I think it helped them early on to not do too much of that customization. Yeah, uh, definitely smart. And I mean, I just think of how point of sale systems were before and, you know, just, they totally just disrupted that whole, whole business model. Um, 
so what are you up to now? Uh, so yeah, so GV was a good run, um, but I, I, you know, as I did with Orange, and then left to do a startup. I, I kind of cycled through different ideas and had had done quite well and had a few passion projects I wanted to pursue. One around education, um, and so I, you know, came back to Google to first work on that project, which I could have done it as a startup. But Google is strong in education; they have Google Classroom. I wanted to do it as a stylus tablet-based experience and Google has, you know, both Chrome OS's tablets with styluses and now Android um, as a tablet OS. Uh, um, so came back that, you know, launched a product that has a few million users in beta right now called uh, Google Practice Sheets, not not the best name, but, um, but has this vision of a digital tutor built into a worksheet that has a lot of places that it's going to grow and have impact. And then and then because of that, also realized that we, you know, that was launching on Chrome OS tablets, but really thought Android, Google needed to, to lean into tablets more heavily. iPad has been hugely successful. Large numbers of Android users use iPads, even though they have Android phones, because we haven't had, you know, a real Android focus on tablets, even though some of our OEMs like Samsung and Lenovo have been building great tablets. So, um, you know, as part of, you know, a few other passionate people to convince the leadership that no, no, we need, you know, we need to have a strong story for Google focused on a variant of Android that's focused on large screens like tablets and, uh, um, and, and a roadmap. And, you know, we've announced a 1P tablet now um, that we're going to be shipping. Um, uh, and so, so yeah, so, so anyway, so came back to Google to, you know, to, to basically do uh, pursue a few passion projects. And then I've also started an angel fund that I invest of, out of, we were talking earlier, it was just on the phone with the governor of Maine because I'm doing some more give back, helping to figure out how to get um, rural Mainers where I have our vacation uh, homes, uh, rural Mainers connected uh, to broadband and high-speed internet. And that's a passion of, of Governor Mills up there. Uh, and then um, we talked about UMass Lowell and the rebranding of that. Uh, so, you know, I have a family foundation doing philanthropic work, still sit on a few GV boards. I'm still involved with GV, just had a board with Dialpad uh, the other day. Tamer is another one of my portfolio companies, Andy Palmer, a great Boston-based entrepreneur. We started with uh, Mike Stonebreaker. Mm -hmm. So uh, no shortage of no shortage of projects. LP and a few funds. Um, uh, Brian Halligan, who I worked with at HubSpot with that investment, Brian just started Propeller, which is an amazing uh, fund focused on the new blue economy. So looking at clean, you know, you know, clean energy um, and um, and global warming, but looking really specifically at, at technologies focused around the ocean uh, that can help address that problem. Uh, so, you know, 15 year old and a 17 year old have, have uh, no shortage of things. Uh, Built a boat that we just launched this past summer that was a fun project. So okay, no well, I got to talk about the boat. I got to talk about Shadow, right? right? Shadow, yes. So I feel like I... I can't say that too loud because that's also the name of one of our golden retrievers who will come running in <laughs> if we say Shadow is a I feel like I followed the progress of Shadow with your social media posts. So um, I was excited when I saw it hit the water. And I was reading about it and I... So you built it with C machines, autonomous technology. So I, like, that's one of, you know, venture fizz is, you know, C machines is one of our customers. So I wanted to learn more about the adoption of, you know, autonomous 
boating technology in, in shadow? Yeah, I mean, so for me, I, I kind of, you know, the, you know, the, the house that I'm living in, I got to work with some smart architects to design it. Um, I think even when I, um, I, in my, you know, it, it, the dining room table we have downstairs, I've worked with a passionate wood designer to build a custom, you know, table. I invested in custom made, another Boston startup back in the day that, you know, ButcherBox uh, founder Mike, you know, had had started. Um, another Boston company so, crushing it. Yeah, ButcherBox Yeah, so it. I just, I, you know, get passionate about products I build and those products can be Android or Wildfire voice-based assistant or, you know, the home I'm living in or the boat that we were building. So, um, so look at it like I look at other products. I, you know, balance a form and function, you know, look at what technologies are, are kind of bleeding edge for construction and for the, you know, propulsion and for the control systems of the boat and, um, and, you know, just kind of iterated with a great team to get some of, you know, what, what seemed like at the time. So, you know, and, and also the form and design of it as well. It's got to look like it, it our, one of our houses, you know, place up in Maine is on very much a working waterfront sort of coast. So there's a lot of lobster boats out in, you know, in the Bay. And so we don't want it to look that out of place with the other lobster boats and have it fit in. So it had to look like it fits on the main coast. So yeah, worked with a great team up at Lyman Morris who did the building, a designer who had built another boat um, that we had purchased used called Chris Hood uh, at CW Hood Yachts up in Marblehead. And yeah, just looked at lots of different technologies, the, the um, multi-function devices, big displays that boats have today where all the controls happen. Those are from a company called Raymarine. They, you know, run Android at their core. Um, so, you know, so I knew of that company, knew they ran Android, was able to, you know, talk to the executives about things that they had coming in their roadmap that we could integrate in the boat that were some of the latest for digital switching for the radar. The propulsion system is a jet from a company called Hamilton Jet, and they had just come out with a new control system, but they hadn't come out with a smaller jet sized for my boat that would work with that control system. But we, you know, I reached out to them and they told us about their new jets they were coming out with. So, yeah, a lot of bleeding edge tech and and we've designed it for the Sea Machines uh, technology as well. Um, but that they were commercializing or are commercializing with Hamilton Jet, the jet company I mentioned. And I, you know, I don't think that's uh, made it to general availability yet. It's, it was targeted for the end of this year to be available. So we're, we're plug ready for the Sea Machines tech to be plugged into the boat. That's so cool. And, so, and, and what right. that gives you is the boat has an auto steering capability, but Sea Machines gives you full on autonomy uh, and full on autonomous control, similar to, you know, what you can get uh, today with the beta version of, uh, of Tesla's full auto drive that is amazing so much cool stuff going on so along those lines what what else are you interested in these days i mean there's ai ar vr web3 so we're, we're, like what what are you looking at these days of that is you know passion or interest yeah i mean i'm incubating one startup in sort of the still in, in the assistive space but in a tighter vertical that not ready to talk about um that that kind of looks at assistive and fitness and and stuff. So there's that um, big believer in generative AI driven technology, but coupling that with some of the things I talked about with tablets and that I did with this digital tutor, where you could solve math problems and have a tutor, you know, in the screen 
look at you solving your math problem and give you feedback. I think, what if you could give tools to architects where, you know, instead of typing into Dolly, render an A-frame building for me in the woods, and you get kind of what Dolly thinks your A-frame should look like in the woods. What if architects could quickly sketch out a building and actually see that building rendered with the quality that you can render things through some of these generative systems? And mm. so I think um, I think I think keyboards are are belong in a computer museum. I mean, the, the keyboard was patented in 1867, uh, the QWERTY keyboard, um, literally. And, uh, and, and with a lot of, and it wasn't meant to have this duration of use, I don't think it, it, um, I think if you look at almost every invention work of art, work of architecture, it started with somebody sketching. And so I think there's a lot of interesting things you can do. And, now the tablets are becoming much more, you know, commonplace. And I think Microsoft gets this a little bit right that they're all of their computers that they sell these days as Microsoft slates literally are tablets with a stylus capability. And mm -hmm. I think the software is going to start realizing that and catch up to it and tie in recognizing what you're writing, just like we used to recognize, you know, and still recognize what you're speaking, <clears throat> recognizing anything you write and um, and then tying in. AI models and generative and seeing what kind of interesting things you can do. Okay. So I'm going to tie this back to kind of the early beginnings of where you started out with wildfire. So what's the, the future of speech recognition? Well, I, I think this, you know, the, if you think about our relationship with computers, they've really evolved from this model of, and, and the keyboard that I was just talking about as a part of this, talking to the computer at the level of the computer as if it's a, a old school computer, right? Keyboards kind of made sense because, you know, to talk to computers prior to the QWERTY keyboard on a computer, even though they existed on typewriters, you were either toggling, you were toggling in ones and zeros or wiring up the computer. And so Somebody said, wait, I can come up with an ASCII character map for all the letters in the alphabet and give them each a numeric code. And now when you hit a key on a keyboard, the computer gets that numeric code, but we're still very close to the language of the computer. Well, okay, computers can understand our voice now and convert that to text. Text can start doing amazing things. We're speaking and we're using eye contact and gesture. Um, if, I've, if I have an idea, I can describe it. If it's a kind of complicated or mechanical or mathematical idea, talking is not the most efficient way to talk about it. Writing a formula is maybe better. And again, formulas and computers, historically, we came up with a computer language called Fortran to translate, translate the trans part of Fortran, translate formulas into a language the computer could understand. Well, that was when the computer didn't understand formulas. But now I can draw a mathematical formula and have the computer say, oh, that's a convolution function. Right and and just compile my F, my my Fourier transform math formula, compile that into a into a, a Fourier transform algorithm. So, so I think um, I think computers are going to start meeting us at the level of our language. As you're seeing some people generating code from you know uh, ChatGPT, you know GPT right now, you can give it say generate a web page that will do this, and you'll get the code, the web page or or other systems. Um, you know, more efficient thing is sketch out the web page and get the web page, right? So I think you're going to start to see an evolution of, of us starting to communicate with computers more naturally. And I think when we get there, it's going to be less about everybody needs to know how to program and more about who can most effectively articulate their problem to the computer. 
through written or voice or drawing based specification. And then the computer should be able to generate the problem, the, pro the program to solve that problem. Do you think we're, I was watching um, today, uh, Jason Calacanis, he had interviewed Bill Warner years ago when he was in town in Boston uh, talking about angel investing. And then um, Bill had invested in a company that is escaping me now, but it was basically minority report, right? Where the gesture based. So is that interface still people working on that still? Cause I don't know if that company still is around. Yeah. yeah well, I mean, again, what's, you know, think about a touchscreen. there's gesture there. Right. So right, sure. sure. I mean, I think, uh, you know, think about it. You delete accidentally delete something, right. You delete a file accidentally. Mm -hmm. The very first thing you do is you have a facial reaction and your hands go up like, oh no, right? Mm -hmm. Computers should just recognize that and be like, oh, should I undelete that file? Right. right? Like that's just reacting the way a person sitting across from you should react. So sure, I think, again, I think voice, gesture, uh, written, spoken word, handwriting, all of those things will be more seamlessly in a multimodal sort of way, more seamlessly used to, to interact with the computer. All right. So what are three apps you can't live without? Three apps I can't live without. It depends <laughs> on the time of year and what I'm doing. If it's summertime, you know, a chart plotter, navigational apps are certainly pretty big. Um, um, uh, boy, what, what, you know, what, what else, uh, what else can I not live without? I mean, I'm still pretty old school tied to communication, you know, my communication tools. Um, I guess, um, but I'm not a, you know, my house is, has automation, but it, we don't use a lot of fancy controls. I'm not, um, not using Uber that much, not using, you know, DoorDash, other food delivery services all that much, um, you know, news information, communications and collaboration um, and, and design. I'd say, you know, I still do a lot of design projects and, and, uh, and I, I, you know, I practice what I preach. I, if anything, we talked about the boat before, I can show you reams of images that I have of me marking up design diagrams and and uh, uh, PDF, uh, you know, floor plans and layouts and renderings and and iterating it with the with the team. So, yeah, I, I'd say definitely markup is something I use quite a bit. Well, Rich, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through all these great stories and all the amazing things that you've uh, built throughout your career. Certainly, uh, you know, like, like you said, this is, you know, something that'd be a more of a longer form book format, but uh, I appreciate taking the time to walk us through all the great stories. That was a great, great chat. Enjoyed it quite a bit. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.